You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. Bob Dylan said, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. I have felt like an outsider from the very beginning. You are supposed to look like a trophy and basically shut up and sing. I have a a cousin that just checked herself into a hotel room. She, She drank herself to death. I've been at that point where I have felt suicidal. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Pop-Tarts. Me, me, me. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We are both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today we have such a special guest. You know, when it comes to country music, I usually stick to my holy trinity, which is Dolly Parton, Patsy Cline, and Loretta Lynn. And that's like basically it. But today's guest is the exception to that rule for me. Margot Price is a remarkable country singer, songwriter, and producer based in Nashville whose timeless anthems and crystal clear tone literally send shivers up my spine. In the last five years, she has put out three gorgeous albums, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, All American Made, and That's How Rumors Get Started. And most recently, she put out an absolutely devastating video in January for her song, Hey Child, and is planning to headline her first concert since 2019, a socially distanced show at the Caverns Above Ground Amphitheater in Tennessee this May. We have so much to discuss. Welcome to our show, Margot Price. Yay, you're here. Well, thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction, and thanks for having me. We are so thrilled to be speaking with you. Um, I would like to begin, if I may, with your origin story. We all know, based on the title of your first album, that you started off as a Midwest farmer's daughter. You were in Illinois. Give us a quick and dirty overview of how you made it to Nashville and became the country queen that you are to us today. Well, um, at about the age of 20, I came to visit a cousin who lived here and I was pretty dead set on moving to like New York or Los Angeles, but I came here on a whim and fell in love with Nashville after about a decade of waitressing and dead end jobs, I got my first record deal with third man records, um, which is owned by Jack White. And that kind of turned everything around for me. But it was a really long, uh, tumultuous struggle of just getting my foot in the door and finding honest people to work with that didn't want to change me. So, yeah, I, I owe a lot to to them for, for putting out that first record. And... Uh, yeah, I've, I still am living in Nashville. I'm outside of Nashville now in a town called White's Creek. But I have a love-hate relationship with this city and with the country music industry in general. It's I've kind of compared it to like an ex-boyfriend that I need a little space from right now. So the last <laughs> album, <laughs> you know, I'm always going to love you and I'm probably going to go back to you. But uh, it's, yeah, it's, 
this last album that I put out, I wanted to do more of like a Fleetwood Mac, Linda Ronstadt. Um, it gives me like AM just, gold vibes. Oh, yes. Yeah, I just I wanted to do something that wasn't so rooted and so traditional because, you know, I love the Heartbreakers and I, I love soul music and, and so many different kinds of music that I've made throughout the past you know, however long I've been here now, it's been like 17 years I've been living in Nashville. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm just rambling now. <laughs> no, not at all. You know, it's interesting to me that you said that for those 10 years, you know, that it took you to become an overnight success, that people were trying to change you. And like I said, I don't listen to a lot of country music, but to me, when I listen to your music, it fulfills, it checks every box of what I'm looking for when I want to listen to something that really feels genuine and heartfelt. I'm wondering what it, what it was that they were trying to change about you, because I'm sure I would be furious to hear it. Yeah, (laughs) I was too. I was absolutely furious. I, I think, you know, five years ago when I put that album out, there was less sonically that was like, you know, people weren't having a lot of fiddle or a lot of pedal steel, a lot of banjo and, you know, just not being like an auto-tuned, glossy, slick um, production. And then, of course, like the lyrical content, I think, intimidated people at major labels, even people at smaller labels, because I was talking about sexism and, um, just a lot of the like dirty things that happen in the music industry. Um, and then, you know, obviously I talked about that on my first record and then the second record went even more out there because it was talking about like American politics and, uh, the pay gap. And it was just, more left-leaning than a lot of country records go. So, Which I um, love. Yeah, yeah, totally. And now <laughs> I think, you know, people are, like, really into that. They're like, oh, well, of course, like, let's make a, a liberal country album. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> hip now, but, you know, it was scary five years ago when I, when I did it. It was nobody else Yeah, was I mean, the Dixie that. Chicks got completely obliterated. I know. And they weren't even singing about that in their music. You know, their songs were like, they had murder ballads about killing men, which was great. You know, Goodbye Earl was Mm -hmm. one of my favorite songs when I was 10 years old, 12 years old. But uh, yeah, we've seen what happens to women when they express some kind of discontent with the government, especially in country music. It's like, no, you are supposed to look like a trophy and fit a certain archetype and, you know, basically shut up and sing. And, uh, so yeah, I wasn't going to do that. And that was just unacceptable to a lot of people. As I mentioned in the intro, your new video for Hey Child is very deeply emotional. In, in the opening moments, we see you standing at a bathroom counter, cutting up lines of cocaine with a credit card. And then you look up at yourself in the mirror and your face very slowly crumples into a look of such pure grief.
wasn't just that I was crying along with you on the screen. Like, like tears just kind of shot out of my face. <laughs> I wasn't even prepared for it. And then they were just popping out. Um, and I was just crying along with you. What can you tell me about the story behind the song and how you went about making a video for it? Um, yeah, for the video, my friend Kimberly Stuckwich, she directed it and wrote the treatment. And she just kind of asked me the same question, you know, like what was on your mind, what was going on in your life when you wrote this song? And we knew each other back in those days. And I wrote this song for, with my husband, Jeremy Ivy for our rock and roll band, Buffalo Clover. And we wrote it so long ago, uh, probably back in 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. And, uh, we had been really floundering in this city for a long time. Uh, both of us had, you know, been fired from multiple jobs, quit multiple jobs, We'd signed uh, what we thought was a good deal with a, a kind of an indie label, which just ended up, up getting us into a lot more debt. We had both been grieving the loss of our son, um, who had a, a heart problem. I had twin boys um, in 2010, and when we lost him, we both just really turned to drinking and, you know, and with that came a lot of what started as casual drug use. Um, there's just the people that we were hanging out with. It was a lot of punk bands, rock and roll bands. And we were all like the outsiders. It was just like, you know, we played bad shows, but we, we had this like camaraderie and, uh, so yeah, I, I, when that song was written, we kind of wrote it to our friends, like, you know, as kind of a, like, get your shit together. Um, you know, this is dangerous. It's, it was, it was dangerous the way that we were partying and drinking. I mean, we held it together. You know, we, we had a kid, but if one night I would be out the next night he would be out and it was just really <clears throat> kind of a destructive time. So Kim wanted to know if I wanted to kind of like act out like past me and, you know, everything that had happened from wrecking my car and, you know, going to jail, and, but kind of in a more surreal way. Um, she, at first she wanted me to also be a stripper <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the video. And I was like, well, how about we just, how about I'm like playing guitar, but like Jenny from Forrest Gump or something. <laughs> her dream had come true. She was a folk singer. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was scared to do the video because I was worried that, you know, that my mom was going to be upset because of the drug use, but I wanted to be very clear that like, I wasn't making it like cool drug use. It was, uh, it was a breaking point during those days. And, um, yeah, I actually just just got sober again <laughs> for the oh, congratulations. millionth time. I mean, I'm still smoking weed, but I quit drinking. And this pandemic has been like, I don't know. I think, you know, it's just been lonely and uh, devastating for a lot of people. And I kind of found myself like getting back into a little bit of those old ways. 
it really does seem like you've gone through a lot. Um, yeah. And I feel it in in the, the video and in the song. And um, I'm so – something that I thought was also really moving about uh, about the – the video was that at the end you provide info for the national suicide prevention lifeline and the substance abuse and mental health services helpline. I wonder if you reached out for any type of help during the times that you were singing about and if any people have reached out to you since you put out the video saying that the video helped them to do that. Yeah, I, I wanted to be sure to include that because of I've been at that point where I have, you know, felt suicidal and, you know, a lot of it was back in the early to 2010, 11, 12, 13. I was, I was really struggling with that grief and, and I wanted to, um, to just provide that information. Sometimes it's good to, it's just good to see it and know that other people are going through that. Like, a my, I have a a cousin that just checked herself into a hotel room. This was just a few months ago and she, she drank herself to death and they found her like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. It was, and I just felt so bad. I just started thinking like how many other people out there right now are feeling alone and, and isolated. And, um, yeah, I have the, I started a, like a hotline. It kind of was supposed to be funny at the beginning. You know, it was just like people would call this hotline and there was, I had a bunch of like rumors on there and true facts. You could push different buttons to like, it was like press one to hear a rumor, press two to hear new music. And then we've always included some kind of link to like, uh, you know, a charity or whatever was going on on at the time. It started off during the time of the Nashville tornado last year so you could donate to tornado relief. And, um, recently we, you know, we've had the, the links to, um, suicide prevention hotline, but I also have said, you know, leave a message of hope, or if you just want to want to talk to somebody and tell me something, I've had so many fans, um, reach out and just leave little bits of wisdom and, you know, just leave me messages. And it's been a cool way to communicate with, with fans while I can't, see their faces and play shows. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine I've gone through dark times like that too. And I could see how you would be such a comforting presence to reach oh. out to. If there were a, a Margo Price hotline, I would probably. Yeah. I mean, it's not a psychic hotline, but you know, it's, it's something. <laughs> I was excited to hear that you were planning on playing a live show again um, in May because in fact, the very, very last time I saw live music before the entire world shut down, I saw you. Where? I saw you at Carnegie Hall for the Tibet House Benefit in February of 2020. It was such an amazing show. You were there. Phoebe Bridgers was there. Patti Smith and Lori Anderson and Iggy Pop. Betty Lavette was there, who I love. It really mm-hmm. was a, a superb amazing night of music and I had no idea that it was going to have to hold me over for an entire year Same. Um, it, it was such a great night but I it sort of was like a little crocus po- poking up through the snow to think that you have scheduled your next appearance live 
Um, like I said, it's going to be in, uh, uh, in Tennessee in May. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, how does it feel to be preparing to play again? And what are you doing to make it happen safely for everybody? What's go- Tell me everything about yes. your, your return to the stage. Oh, I can't wait. It's been a long time coming. Um, Jason Isbell and his band played out there last fall. Um, and there's other people that have been playing out there as well. But I think, you know, for me, any I've, I've been offered shows and I've turned things down during this time. And I know a lot of people just didn't even stop playing at all. And I'm like kind of wondering what's wrong with some of them, which is just see people playing like inside venues. No names will be mentioned. But um, <laughs> I, yeah, it, for we us, know who it they are. Like, yeah, we see you. Um, yeah, I wanted it to be something that was completely safe and they, there's no contact at all. You order the tickets online, you show up at staggered times. So, and you, obviously they have temperature checks. It's all in pods. And then even like ordering, um, food or drinks, you do it contactless through an app on your phone. And, uh, so yeah, this seems like the safest place to play. It's kind of like a drive-in type vibe. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the fact that, that Jason played it and other people that I respect and I know really take safety seriously. So it's like, all right, this is something I feel like we can do. And it's, yeah, gives me a sense of purpose to have work on the horizon because, uh, yeah, it's been just devastating to have our live shows ripped away from us at a time when everybody streams music instead of buying it. It's like, that's the only way a lot of artists can make money. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know what, since you mentioned that, I, I was going to ask you about that later, but I think I'm going to ask you about it now. Cause you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of making a living, uh, I personally, I don't know what I would have done without music during this pandemic. I've found listening to music, especially really fucking sad music. <laughs> I found it very cathartic, but at the yeah. same time I can, I have paid for music exactly twice in the last year in the form of two live streaming shows on veeps.com where I shelled out my $20 or whatever. How are the artists I love like you paying rent and feeding their families right now and how are you guys planning on making a living going forward? Cause I know it's going to be a long time before we see shows the way we used to. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I know a lot of people are really struggling right now and I've been lucky that I've had some, um, little opportunities to do like filming things or, um, you know, like song placements and, and films, or, um, like I just did a, a parody song for the show Big Mouth that hasn't come out yet, but you know, just little things here and there to, to make some sort of a paycheck. And I think we're going to have to create a musician's union and march our asses to Washington and demand that more of streaming money goes into the pockets of the writers and the artists, because there's a disconnect there somewhere where, yeah, you know, big how, one. 
And I think a lot of people are just really scared to go to bat with these people. It's just like with commercial radio, like, oh, don't speak up. Don't say anything that might piss somebody off. But we're getting screwed. Yeah, I mean, so, I know for a while people were saying, well, it's the the Spotify numbers that determine who gets like big slots in lucrative tours and things like it that. Is. But when there are no lucrative tours and like and you take that part of the money equation away, then it's just Spotify making a lot of money off of a lot of art that people aren't being paid for. We have to start taking care of writers and artists because otherwise there's, I mean, we're already seeing like a decline in, I think in art in general. And if you well, don't, because it's a lot cheaper to make a reality show than like a scripted series, for example, uh, things of that nature. But exactly. just anybody who's been indoors for a year, just try to imagine this pandemic without any kind of art at all. And I it know. would be like unsurvivable. Yeah, I think people just kind of take it for granted and take it for granted that it costs money to to make a record and to, you know, to just to make a good piece of art, whatever that final product is, it's really, um, it's something that we have to start prioritizing and it's, yeah, it's going to take some fighting and some pushback, but hopefully we'll be able to, to do something, but it's, it's scary because it's, you know, they're big corporations and, uh, you have to get powerful people on your side. I know like, you know, for a while it was like Taylor Swift. She like pulled her songs off Spotify. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and Neil Young, but then it's like, Oh, they end up going back, back. because yeah. if, you know, it's forced to, you know, speaking about changing the industry, your name just came up recently. I think it was like a little over a week ago in a New York Times article I was reading. The name of the article was A New Generation Pushes Nashville to Address Racism in Its Ranks. A small contingent of country artists and industry players have been speaking up in a business that likes to shut down dissent, which is exactly what you've been talking about during this interview. The, the story pointed out that there's a small handful of women in Nashville. They name you Mickey Guyton. Cam, Marin Morris, and Amanda Shires, that you, this small group of women has been speaking out about country music needing to diversify and to confront racism. There are certain people dropping racial epithets out there on the internet and being called out for it. Um, and I know that you also made a statement asking the Grand Ole Opry to become more diverse. And um, I'm not sure if you've been invited back there since you did that. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to go on a limb and say no. Um, why is it that women are leading the charge on this? And what else can you tell me about your current efforts to help diversify country? I think it's really brave and important that you are taking a stand in this way. Well, Bob Dylan said, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And I think the reason that you're seeing more women and, you know, I don't get commercial radio play. I don't get, some of these women do get, you know, to go to these like award shows and, and benefit off of the country music industry. And so kudos to them for speaking out, uh, when it could, you know, potentially damage their career. Um, but I have felt like an outsider from the very beginning. And I 
I don't think they can take anything away from me that I don't already have. So, you know, but also it's just in my, uh, my personality and the way that I was raised to speak up for the underdog and to, to point out when things are wrong and when they need to change. And, um, for a long time, there's, you know, been gatekeepers that just like to keep it all like white, like a Colgate commercial and, you know, everything's squeaky clean and you don't talk about what's going on in society. You don't talk about, uh, racial discrimination. You don't talk about those kinds of problems, but there were a lot of country artists that, that did, you know, have a message at times in their music. Like, I mean, Johnny Cash, he had an album called Bitter Tears that was about the struggles of the Native Americans. Um, there's a song by Henson Cargill that's called Skip a Rope, and it's definitely about um, racism. And, you know, obviously there's there's songs about divorce and drinking, and, and those things are um, more accepted than than what's going on right now. But I, I think we've, we've got such a long way to go. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's been scary at times to, to speak out about it and, and see the messages that get sent in my DMS or people just calling me a cunt or, you know, saying like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly. I mean, it doesn't even hurt anymore. Like, give me a break. Uh, I'm happy to, to be, to have a platform to even be able to speak out against stuff like this. Um, I always knew that if I did get my foot in the door at all, that I would uh, try to use my voice to make things better and not worse. <laughs> Sorry, my, my cat is so interested in you. He wants to see what's going on. Uh, Hi, Irv. Do you love Marco Price? Cute cat. Uh, <laughs> um, so I don't know if we, if you've seen this hashtag circulating online, there's a hashtag change country hashtag that's been floating around mostly on Twitter. It's been, it's being circulated by country music against white supremacy. And they were inspired by the black country music association, which was Mm -hmm. around for like 10 years. Like I think in the nineties, we just wrote about them um, for bust and, and, you know, there's this change country pledge that's going along with this hashtag change country where they're asking industry insiders to pledge to do what they can to diversify country. It's interesting to see like these grassroots um, initiatives really taking hold in the, you know, in, in the wake of the black lives matter uprisings. And I think that, um, projects like this really need high profile people like you. I know you say that you're an outsider and that you're not high profile and that's why you're able to do it. But I definitely like think that you are one of the most recognizable voices that can be attached to this sort of grassroots organizing that's happening around this idea. Yeah, for sure. I, I had a great conversation with this artist named Swamp Dog. I don't know if you know Swamp Dog, but he's like, he's a cult figure. I mean, people, people call him that, but he, he deserves so much more success than he got. He, um, was around in the sixties and seventies and he actually wrote this song that was cut by over a hundred different country artists. It's, um, friend don't take her. She's all I got. (laughs) 
Johnny Paycheck cut it, made a huge hit out of it. And he has an incredible story about how he was treated by the CMAs when he was up for Song of the Year. Uh, this was back in the 70s. But he put out a great record called Sorry You Couldn't Make It. And uh, Jenny Lewis sings on it. And it's he just put it out in 2020. And he's is incredibly... A uh, handsome older black man, and he's wearing a nudie suit and a cowboy hat. Oh, and, I love a nudie suit. Yeah, you got to check it out. There's a song called Family Pain that's on there. It's like, it's hip hop with a fiddle. It's like blues, R&B, soul music. But it's, you know, he's from Virginia. And it's like, obviously, black folks have been making country music and have been shut out for a long time. So it's like, I love seeing, you know, folks like Mickey and... Um, Rissy Palmer and, you know, Rhiannon Giddens, who's been around for quite a while. She's kind of more on the Americana side like I am. Um, my friend Adia, Victoria, I really have uh, just had love seeing this conversation come to life and, and people stepping out there. So I'm going to have to get on that hashtag and, and check it out. You say that you're more on the Americana side. That makes me kind of think about, you know, in the intro, I I mentioned that I really only listen to sort of like classic lady country, but I also listen to you. Is that why I listen to you and not more mainstream acts? Like I sometimes wonder, like, it's hard for me to put a finger on like why I can listen to you all day long, but like, I can't listen to country radio. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I think like Americana is a word that it's so it's confusing in a lot of ways, but country as to what it used to be known as, like you were saying, Dolly Parton, Loretta Lynn, you know, like, um, Waylon Jennings, people whose music I really respect, that word has been hijacked. And, you know, even like the CMAs, like country music association, like they've hijacked that word. None of those songs, none of those people that are, uh, on there are making what I would call country music, But because that's been kind of overtaken, I think Americana is just like, it's more about the song. And, you know, maybe the production is like more roots oriented. Speaking of people who are roots oriented, yeah, I I enjoyed reading while I was doing some research on you that country icon Willie Nelson has his own marijuana company called Willie's Reserve. And a few years ago, he asked you to, he wanted to release a strain chosen by you and named by you, which seems like the (laughs) ultimate weed compliment of all time. It's like the Pope asking you to become Catholic or something. Based on (laughs) what I read about it, it sounds like it would be perfect for me because it's indica and it helps with insomnia and back pain. I have both of those things. And Sativa makes me pukey, but I love indica. <laughs> um, it, it's such a bummer that I can't buy your special strain because I live in New York, but allegedly in a month or so it's going to be legal. Who knows? Wow. But um, uh, 
we'll see. You know, these things yeah. take time. But they're saying next month. But what can you tell me about your gondrepreneur side hustle? Like, especially as someone who is sober currently, like, tell me, tell me about that life. Well, I feel like I've always related to Willie, obviously because he's a genius songwriter and, and I just, I, I love his music, but the fact that he quit drinking alcohol and he quit smoking cigarettes and he like credits marijuana as like, you know, kind of saving his life. And I too have like, there's been so many times where I'm like, I can't drink anymore. Like weed is my friend. I remember everything that happens on it. I wake up feeling fresh as a daisy. Uh, so yeah, I, I smoke a ton of pot and it was crazy when he, when he wanted us to name, you know, we had to, it was hard work. We had to, uh, sample like 20 different kinds of weed. <laughs> that sounds really hard. <laughs> it was a difficult day of work, but we, uh, you know, it's, because he has Farm Aid, which is an organization that I have also felt really connected to, being that my my dad was a farmer and lost his farm during the the farming crisis of the mid '80s. Every even with the weed strains, it's like all of the marijuana is like grown organically by local independent farmers, um, and you know, just done in a way that that feels meaningful and it's not just some like, Oh, I'm here. I'm like, I am a white woman with a a weed strain, but I've also like chosen to donate a lot of the money to the bail project and last prisoner project, because I just don't think it's fair that people are incarcerated and, you know, predominantly black and Brown folks. It's, it's so messed up. And so if I can do anything with the profits of a weed line, it's that I want to help people who shouldn't be in jail and who, you know, maybe can't pay bail or, or whatever. Awesome. Wow. That's a beautiful incentive for everyone to buy your weed. Yes. Selling weed and growing weed to help people who are been incarcerated because of weed. Yeah. Why yeah. not? Yeah. Margot Price, I would like to know, are you a feminist? Hell yes. Hell yes, yes. yes, I'm a feminist. And my husband is too. And and my son, who's 10 years old. uh, Yeah, I think a lot of people think that that's a dirty word. But I definitely would proudly tell anyone I'm a feminist. How did you raise a feminist? How did you go about doing that? I have always tried to like, tell my son, um, you know, that, that things are not equal for, for women and men. And I think, you know, especially when he was like six, seven years old, they start going through this, like, Oh, boys are better than girls. And this whole mentality Mm -hmm. starts and, you know, little girls do it too. And I, and I get that, that a lot of that's just natural to think the opposite sex is yucky, but, uh, you know, he's heard me talk about things very candidly, like, oh, I don't get paid as much at this show as this man does, who maybe hasn't even had a fraction of the success that I have. But because I'm a woman, there's a a pay gap. And, you know, he's, that affects him. He, he understands, um, 
you know, that women didn't have the right to vote until later. And that, you know, women couldn't even go to the bank and take out a loan until what was it? Late sixties. Yeah. I think it was the early seventies. Early seventies. It's wild, you know? And, um, he's, I've always had him play equally with girls and boys and, and really try to look past gender and in the same token to look past color and, and not judge a book by its cover. You know, um, uh, I know you have a young daughter also. Do you think that your methods to raise her as a feminist will be any different than the ones you use to raise a feminist boy? I don't think so. I think that there's something that's really beautiful about raising boys and girls the same and not giving them any kind of like script that they have to follow or any kind of, uh, boundaries on, on what they like and what their tastes are. Um, yeah, Ramona is, she's a pandemic baby. So like we haven't, and she's a second child. So I haven't like went out and bought her as many toys and things as I did my son. It's even though I had less money when my son was little, he was like the first kid. So, you know, you think that they need all these things that they don't. And Ramona just plays with a lot of her brother's hand-me-downs. So like she's, she plays with like cars and trucks and trains and even all her bath toys are like, you know, Batman figurines. Like we just haven't went out and bought as much shit. So uh, It's making me think yeah. of like one of the first issues of Bust that we put down after, that we put out into the world after the shutdown had a, a photo, an interview with you in it and a photo of you posing with your breast pumps. It was such a killer image. It was so choice. And I'm just, it's giving Nachis, I'm, I'm Jewish. Nachis is like, it's giving me like pride and happiness to think about like the baby who is needing that breast milk that was pumped on in the pages of bust magazine is now like out, you know, like strolling around playing with trucks and like doing, doing her thing. No, I was, I was, happy that somebody had the guts to put that image out because it was really, I was just pumping and the girl that was doing the photo shoot that day, she's like, can I take pictures of this? I was like, if you want. You looked awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. No, I I think one thing that I have really tried to be mindful of while raising a daughter is that I should have done more with my son, but I'm, you know, as you parent, you realize sometimes you've made mistakes, but I try not to say things like that are derogatory about my looks and, Oh, I need to die. I need to diet. Or, you know, I never say like, I'm working out to be skinny. I always say like, I'm working out, you know, mommy's going to go for a run so I can be strong. And, And I tell her all the time, I don't say, Oh, you're so pretty. I say you're strong and you're smart. And I, also I've been thinking about, you know, as I'm getting older and there's like the pressures of society to get plastic surgery or look a certain way. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to have to do that. And I don't want my daughter to like see me making myself like not look like myself. I mean, I, it's taken me a long time to learn to, to love myself and accept my face and who I am. And, and, I can't even imagine like the pressures for teenagers right now with the internet. So I'm trying to, to ease her into all of that and, and not make her feel pressure of like having to be beautiful or uh, focus on 
looks or weight. Fuck that. That's awesome. I love it. (laughs) Um, Now tell me, uh, what are your hopes and your dreams and your plans for 2021? We're just getting this year underway already. It's a lot different than 2020. Tell, Tell me what's on your vision board for this upcoming year. I have really been focused on recording two albums. I'm recording two albums simultaneously because I've needed like, I've needed to keep myself busy in a productive way. And so, yeah, I've been going to the studio once a week to work on this one project. And then I'm also going to, maybe take a road trip out West and just get in like an RV and nice. Yeah. Like drive out to California. With everyone with the kids and, and your husband and everybody. I think so. I mean, it's either going to be like my, my kids and my mom, and my husband, or like my band family. So mm. we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens, but I, maybe I'm you can take hard. two RVs. Yes. Yeah. We'll get a tour bus and a, uh, a canned ham. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I started making this album already and we've recorded a bunch of demos, but I, I want to go out West and, and finish the rest of it out there. So that's definitely on the horizon. And I'm also, uh, editing a memoir that I wrote and that's been keeping me really busy. So have you, did you write the entire memoir during lockdown? No, I started writing it when I got knocked up because <laughs> I couldn't tour back then, you know, and I was like, uh huh, really missing work. So when you were knocked up with your daughter, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, University of Texas Press picked it up. So I've had been working with this editor, uh, Naomi Huffman, and I'm on the second draft right now. And uh, I've never edited a book. I've never written a book, and I've never edited one. So this is like all new to me second draft though that's that's pretty far along I'm really gonna mm-hmm. look forward to seeing that out in the world that's great thanks thanks does does it have a release date yet um they've just said spring of 2022 and uh <gasps> it'll be here yeah. before you know it yeah I know I know yeah that'll that'll keep me busy I've been trying to do like an hour a day but uh I'm only on page 37 right now, and I'm supposed to have the second draft done by the end of February. It's 500 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I know how that goes. Trust me. That's how every issue of Bust feels, especially while working from this couch that I'm sitting on right now. I'm like, oh, yes. boy. Yeah, uh, you'll do. You'll make it. I know you can make I, it. I work good under pressure. <laughs> uh-huh. And. And I just have one more question for you. And this is a question that we ask all of our guests. That question is, what you watching? It's a broad Ah. question. We want to know about movies, TV, books, music, music videos, podcasts. If there's anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know it because it's probably very, very cool. Margot Price, what you watching? What am I watching? Oh, we have watched, we have watched a lot of stuff during, during this time. Uh, let's see. The other night I watched a film called Clay Pigeons, which is uh, kind of an older film, but it's Joaquin Phoenix and uh, it's very dark. 
Texas murder story, but great nostalgia. Uh, let's see. What else have I sunk my teeth into lately? Um, Nomadland, Francis McDormand. Oh, my God. Her, I just watched that. It her the awards. I've also, oddly enough, I've watched a lot of Intervention. <laughs> mm-hmm. My husband and I have, have watched Intervention. Um, let's see. I'm reading. Well, I just finished Quit Like a Woman. That I was just going to take a month off of drinking and that's where I'm like, okay, I don't think I'm ever drinking again. It's this book by Holly Whitaker. Absolutely phenomenal um, book on substance abuse and just feminism. Really powerful. Uh, let's see. What else have I read? Patty Smith, Year of the Monkey. Oh, I liked that. Uh, yes. She, I mean, Patty Smith was definitely my inspiration for writing a book. After, you know, reading just kids for the third time, I was like, how to do this. Um, let's see music videos. I'm trying to think what I've been listening to. I love a Dia Victoria song called stuck in the South or not stuck in the South. South got to change. That song was one of my favorites of this past year. And like I said, the swamp dog record, uh, sorry, you couldn't make it. One of the best albums of 2020 and should not have been overlooked like it was. Uh, let's see. Oh, Jim Carrey, his his memoir, his memoirs and misinformation, is phenomenal. If you haven't read it, huh. I suggest that. No, one. I haven't. Huh? That's interesting. Yeah, he. It was not a typical memoir. I think a lot of it was just embellished, but it was really good. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to. That's I know that awesome. there's going to be more stuff. I'm going to have to like email you a list of everything <laughs> that I've. You watched. can feel free to email me anytime. Okay, great. Because you're great, and I appreciate what you do, and I'm so so happy to have had this chance to talk to you and to meet you in person at last. Hey, thank you so much, and hopefully, I'll get to see you um, up in New York at a show. When, Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. When that happens. Yeah. When that happens. Um, thank you again so much. We're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when I come back, I'm going to ask Callie. And Callie is going to ask me, what, what you watching? watching? Now, hold on. Hold on. I'm going to stop recording. Before we get back to the show... I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be. And you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious. And I knew would make great podcasts. And every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. 
We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. <laughs> Scams? I'm Caitlin I'm Rodney Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German-Russian heiress, and she seems like she has a lot of money, and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. It's amazing. So smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Hello. Callie, we talked to Margot Price. Ah, she's so sweet. That was awesome. Totally. Now is a part in the program in which I ask you, my dear friend, Callie Watts, what you watching? Oh, well, I I watched Coming to America 2 on Amazon Prime. <gasps> so good, right? It was so good. I think it's going to be in one of my top fave movies of the year, even though the year just started. <laughs> it was hilarious. Like ev- every time. I thought that I had seen the most over-the-top production number. They did another one. I know. The production, the dance numbers were amazing. The costumes were amazing. Leslie Jones was hilarious. I just loved loved it. And Did you notice the only white person in that whole movie was Louis Anderson? <laughs> yeah. But I think that's because they made them put a white person in Coming to America 1. I oh, think really? I read that somewhere. And I think it was Louis. Could be making that up. <laughs> Yeah, no, he was in the first one, yeah. Yeah, so I think he he was, they were like, you have to have a white character in here. And it was Louis. Don't, I could just be pulling that out of my ass, though. But anyway, that was hilarious. The I loved all the costume. I loved the special effects makeup. Oh, it's just every every second of it. <laughs> every fucking second. I love that new girl who played the romantic lead. She is so cute. I think that she's going to be in a lot of things. Yeah, Definitely. Um, then, oh, I was on uh, a live podcast, uh, Dead Men of Whiskey, which is my friend Christian Dietrich's uh, podcast I'd mentioned before. And I was on a live episode of that about Helen Cumming. And she was a um, bootleg distiller back back in the day. And uh, she's pretty badass. Um, and the, the, people like to say it was her husband who was making the, that, that was the distiller, but really she was the one doing it low key. Mm-hmm. Um and you can watch that. Um, it was on Twitch, but you can watch it on deadmenofwhiskey.com if you want to see me talk about whiskey and drink whiskey. And yeah, becoming the podcast superstar that you were born to be. <laughs> born to be. I really like the setup on Twitch because people can comment on it live oh. and ask questions. It's cute. Maybe we should have a live show someday. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be great. We should sometime. We could test. I'll send you the thing that they set it up. Hello, everybody. Cool. Get ready for our live show. <laughs> Wee! Um, there's, I went on a crazy horror binge. I'm going to have to just dedicate a whole what you're watching to that 
next time okay. because it's too much. But it all came from this <laughs> list, 50 best horror movies you've never seen on this uh, free app thing called Tubi. And Oh, yeah, Tubi. Tubi. I love Tubi. And uh, there was a lot I had seen, of course, you know, because I watch a lot of horror. But there was gems in there that I have not seen yet. There were some really good ones I watched. Um, but we will discuss them later at length. All right. <laughs> I want to bring teaser. up. teaser. Uh-huh. If you want to catch up and watch them so you know what I'm discussing, go watch that video on Tubi. Um, Do Not Split. Uh, it's a short doc that's up for an Academy Award about the Hong Kong protests in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in 2019, they proposed that bill allowing the Chinese government to extradite criminals to, from, to mainland China. And Hong Kong went crazy about it. And it is really, really, really good doc. It's only 30 minutes. You can watch it at fieldofvision.org. Um, I totally forgot. It seemed, that seemed like so, so, so long ago already. 2019? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, 2019 was a lifetime ago. <laughs> I forgot that the siege at the university had lasted for two weeks. And really everything just calmed down because uh, the people of Hong Kong take coronavirus very seriously. So right. that yeah. once they're vaccinated, I'm sure they're going to go crazy again. It was really, really good. And there, there's a, they interview a lot of ladies in there. Um, I liked it a lot. And then I saw this uh, show on HBO called The Pack. Um it's really a Spanish title, which I would destroy, so I'm not going to try to say it. <laughs> La Jolora. <laughs> anyway, the pack in, in Spanish. <laughs> and it's a Chilean show. Say, say that one more time. The, the it, What is it called? The pack, but in Spanish, you know, whatever Spanish for the pack is, because I would destroy how this is pronounced. Um, it's on HBO. Not to be confused with that um, scavenger hunt, dog scavenger hunt. <laughs> competition show called the pack <laughs> so, <laughs> if you're looking it up don't don't get confused this one is a chilean show about a young feminist leader named blanca at a catholic school she gets kidnapped and raped and the video gets put on social media and they're trying these three female detectives are trying to figure out who did it they think she's still alive and then they find out that there's like this game going on where all these all the boys are playing it and and grown men too there's like this guy called the wolf and he tells them to do these things like they're they're in little teams and all the teams have to collect complete the mission and they're all ways of like fucking with women it's all really fucked up and it's really good super feminist there's like a huge feminist uprising when the video goes around and then it's like the Chilean march that was in I think it's footage of the same feminist Chilean march I was at. It's really, really feministy, but also really intense. So get ready for it. Intense, but so good. Worth a watch. Um, and what have you been watching? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked. You know, the first thing that I want to mention is something that I've been listening to, which is uh, Loretta Lynn has just this week released her 50th studio album at the age of 88. How did I not know this? It's called Still Woman Enough. And our guest, Margot Price, did a duet with Loretta on this album. They did a cover of Loretta's song, One's on the Way, about having too many babies. And it is great. Long live Loretta. And the pill may change the world 
rain is a falling. Dog is a barking and the floor needs a scrubbing. One of them is toddling and one is a crawling. One's on the way. The other thing, of course, that I'm watching is The Masked Singer. Masked Singer is back. Yes. yes. Season five. And it's hosted by Niecy Nash, who I like more than Nick Cannon. And yeah. I'm glad that she's there. I'm not glad that Nick Cannon has COVID. Get well soon, Nick. But in the meantime, I'm glad that Niecy Nash is the host. I hope she replaces him in the long run. <laughs> Low-key, me too. Um, okay, so... I don't know who the majority of the people are. Um, however, I have two very strong initial guesses that I'm going to stand by. So listen to this, people, in the future future, not the future past. If you're watching Mass Singer, listen to me now and believe me later that Eddie Murphy is the robo-porcupine. Oh, I would like that. But the guy, the robo-porcupine is huge, dude. He's fucking huge. I know, but the costume is huge. Right. Um, I think that the costumes can be misleading. And also that porcupine said, you know, I'm 60 years old and it's nice to hear you guys say that. And, and then all, the whole panel of judges guessed people who are not 60 years old. <laughs> Eddie Murphy is turning 60 this year. So just keep it in mind. All right. I also want to say that that crazy raccoon with like the raspy voice who's been in jail is Danny Trejo. I believe ah, it. I can see that. And I'm surprised nobody else guessed it. Yeah. I can see that. All right. So I'm watching that show. And then there were two shows that made me reckon with wanting to be, trying to be, striving to be a, a better ally generally as a white person in an interracial relation. Oh, which I am with this show's producer, Luscious Logan. So the first one was Oprah's interview with Megan and Harry, which was on on March 7th on CBS. And we all know that that was, you know, like one of the most legendary interviews of all time. Like Oprah is a master. If you didn't believe that Oprah is a master interviewer before, you better believe it now. Right. Because she, she squeezed the tea. Out of she those dry juice. tea bags. Yeah, the juice came flowing forth, and we were all shocked. I and tell her you expressions shocked. were the best. <laughs> were you silent or were you silenced? That's going to be in the <laughs> vernacular forever. Um, but the part, you know, like Megan's struggle to, you know, like going in with like a full open heart trying to enter this new family and being – so um, just being made to feel so uncomfortable in so many ways, it pushed buttons in me, especially when she was talking about how there were conversations being had about the possible skin tone of their future child. Yeah, what the um, fuck? That was the main bombshell of the whole thing. Well, that and her saying like, hi, I'm having mental health issues and then being like, fuck you. Um, you know, it made me think a lot about the very first, and I'm talking about the very, very, very first time ever that my white brother met Luscious Logan, and this was almost 17 years ago. 
um, I remember it so clearly. We were we were we had met in one location and we were going to another location and we were on the subway, and my brother looked Logan dead in the face and said, "So, are you two going to have mulatto babies?" I don't even remember what Logan said. I don't think he even dignified it with a reply. I think he just like I maybe mean, pretended like it wasn't said. But besides you know, like, saying, I, what the fuck did you just say? I don't know what else you can say to that. I think we just both ignored it or like rolled our eyes or something. But I, I feel like I could have been a better white ally in that moment. And that, that um, came f- rushing back to me while I was watching that interview. Just like how... Like when you're in an interracial relation, like when it's just the two of you hanging out and vibing at home, like you're just two individuals vibing. And it's easy to like forget that like there's all this other bullshit like out in the world that comes into play until like the world suddenly comes crashing in on you when Mm -hmm. it's not the two of you and you're out in the world. So that's how pop culture impacted me this week. And the last thing I've been watching, of course is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page, which has made its debut in the world this year. I think we just marked its one-year anniversary of our Pop-Tarts Patreon, and it's going strong. Thanks to you guys. We made it because we really need everyone's help to keep Bust alive. And hopefully you'll be very excited by the goodies that we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I have been putting together show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 104 episodes. Oh my God. I know we've got totally ad free episodes. There's exclusive content. You can hear our episode with big Frida. That's only on the Patreon page and you can get gifts from us and little notes from us and zoom chats from us and so much more please check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. My birthday is coming up next week, and all I want is more Patreon donors for my birthday. So <laughs> do it for Rems, why don't you? Happy birthday, uh, Rems. Thank you. Um, also, thank you to our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente. And to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rams and on Instagram at Rams Emily. Uh, but you cannot find Callie on social media, so don't try, right? Don't step to this. <laughs> you can email both of us. I'm at Emily Rams at Bust.com. I'm at Callie W at Bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash Pop-Tarts. And finally, please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. We super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.